Good morning. Our first reading is from Genesis chapter 6. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. And our second reading is 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man lived among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. 
Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Thank you, Heather, and good morning, everybody. Before I get started on this passage, I'm just going to conduct a little bit of market research. I want you to stand up if you, like me, remember driving a car from A to B without having Google Maps but had to use a Gregory's or a UBD Paper Street directory. Where are you? Where are you? The, okay, these are the heroes of old. This is great. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. All right, well done. Have a seat. Praise God for Satnav. It's a good time to be alive. All right, uh, what about, raise your hands, anyone here who's a knitter? And if you're a failed knitter, that's okay too. Okay, there's a couple of knitters out there. Who likes uh, building either for yourself or you can hide behind the excuse of children or grandchildren, building Lego? Any Lego Technic fans? Because that's the best stuff, right? Yeah, a couple there as well. Okay, any bakers? Candlestick makers, no, no, don't need candlestick makers. Okay, so we've got people who've driven, we've got people who do knitting, we've got people who know what it is to build Lego. Who has ever brought home a flat pack furniture item from Ikea? Love them. Put me on your speed dial. If you're having trouble, I'll come help. I like them. Okay, if you are any of these things, then you're well equipped uh, to jump in where we're going today because you know what it is to have a plan in front of you to work according to the plan and at some stage to have to assess how things are going. See, that's where we're going both today in, and in this series, The Waterworks, because this is a God of creation who has a plan. And uh, now as we pick up the story in Genesis uh, 6 to 11, as we'll do over the next few weeks, God looks at the plan, assesses its progress, and through this great deluge, he works a way forward. This is God who's going to assess the quality of progress and work a way forward. Today, as we jump in um, in Genesis 6, here's our outline. We're going to look at the first part, verses 1 to 10, the plan and its progress. We'll take a snapshot with God, like as you build your Lego and you go, or as you build your Ikea and you go, hang on a minute. We're going to look at a snapshot and then we're going to see what God's response is in verses 11 to 12. So come with me as uh, we look at the plan and the progress. Verses 1 to 10 is where you want to be if you've got your Bible in front of you. As you look at the plan and the progress, as you can see here, there are echoes and distortions. There are echoes of what God had in mind as he set up the world and creation. And with those echoes come distortions, almost as if I sort of sang a note, la, and said, you sing the note, and you went, la, you sort of have an echo, but there's a bit of a distortion and things that aren't quite on. Have a look with me. So there's the theme of increasing. Did you notice in Genesis 6, verse 1, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth? And you think, well, that sounds something of the plan because I remember back in Genesis chapter 1, by God's design, he blessed humanity and he said, I want you to increase. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Well, the multiplication is happening. We might raise some questions about the fruitfulness, though, because there are some troubles. You see an echo and a distortion. Uh, there's union, because here we read that the sons of God and the, son and the daughters of humans, uh, well, they're getting married. And you go, I remember marriage, because that happened in the beginning with the man and the woman, but here is a significant distortion. You read sons of God and daughters of men, and immediately 
sometimes we act as editors when we read the Bible, working out how we can smooth things out. This is not how the, the ancient scriptures work. They actually raise up issues for us to go, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? So rather than try to smooth, let's adopt a posture going, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? So when this is written, wait a minute, what do you mean by sons of God and daughters of men? This is an opportunity to discover and to learn by discovery. Now, I've changed my view on this as I've done some study. When you think about who are the sons of God and the daughters of men, daughters of men is probably pretty easy to work out, but who are the sons of God? Uh, the view I used to hold, and many informed Christians do hold, is that the sons of God might be those who walk uh, in a righteous, godly line. So perhaps the line of Seth, the son of Adam and Eve, who would replace Abel, and you sort of got this godly line, and uh, now we're intermingling the godly line with those who are not walking with the Lord and who are in the godless line. I don't think that's the best way to understand this passage, though if you want to take away, if you're a Christian, don't date a non-Christian, it's still good wisdom to live by, but it's not what we learn here. What I think is going here, going on here, and this is kind of by context, by vocabulary and by outcome, is something pretty weird. The sons of God, what's the vocab with that? Well, in the Old Testament, this phrase is only ever used of one group, and they're not human. They're angels. They occur in the book of Job. The sons of God are indeed angelic beings. Now, these angelic beings aren't where they're meant to be. They're intermingling and taking human women for union. And uh, so the, the, the vocab is their own, the sons of God only ever describes angels. The context is one of echo and distortion to something not quite right. And the outcome will come to in a minute what their offspring are like. So I think it leans heavily towards us understanding that what we've got here is rather than the beautiful pattern of bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, like opposites and correspondence when man and woman come together as God designed for union, we've got angels fallen and taking human women for wives. Echo and distortion, union, but distorted union. Then we've got the spirit, the theme of the spirit. So God says here in verse 3, my spirit will not contend or abide with this distorted wicked humanity. And we hear the echo and we remember that when God from the Adamah, the, the earth, made Adam the earthling, and breathed the ruach or breath or spirit of life into his nostrils and he became a living being. Now we've got that echo, but it's quite distorted where once the spirit came in to bring life, now God says, my spirit will not abide and there's 120 years to go before I act definitively that everything with the breath of life in it, I'm going to kill. So we get that echo and distortion. We, this idea of renown, famous men, Heroes. Who are the heroes and the famous ones? Now, here's one of those moments where you're really meant to go, whoa, what do you mean there? So we read in verse 4 that the Nephilim, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Who are the Nephilim? Well, we can say for certain this word means the fallen ones. Uh, extra sources help us to understand that Nephilim could be giants, powerful brutes, ones who can't be held back, and they're fallen. And your moment of recoil is meant to be when we say the Nephilim, 
Well, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. Really? They're the heroes. They're the ones of renown. You're not meant to smooth that out as I have done for many years of Bible reading. You're meant to go, well, that's weird. That's weird. That's distorted. Uh, so we've got fallen giant brutes as the heroes of renown. Contrast with back in Genesis 1 where, where the Adam is made, the earthling, and God says, yes, very good. That's who God uh, renowns and God thinks of as a hero and God favors. And even after the fall, you've got guys like Abel who bring a sacrifice to God and depend upon God and find favor with God. So in God's mind, people like Adam, people like Abel are the ones of renown. But in this time, take a snapshot and it's the Nephilim. Powerful supremacists, fallen ones who are heroes. Ooh, I want to be like them. And then just like in the beginning, there's an assessment where God looks. Uh, we read there, verse 5, then the Lord saw, the Lord, look, the Lord looked. And you get that flashback to the days of creation, don't you? God spoke. It was in conformity with what his plan was. And so he said, that's good. God spoke. It was in conformity. And he said, that's good. God spoke. It was in conformity. And that's very good. But here... God looks, the plan's gone astray, and God says that's wicked. And you see those echoes, hopefully, hopefully you can see those echoes and distortions as we take a snapshot of the plan and the progress of the plan. And so we ask ourselves at this point, what can we learn about God? What does this declare to us about God? Well, here's what I think we can learn already. We get a sense of, of right, his sense of right, what we commonly call righteousness. What does God say is good and what does God say is wicked? And we get a sense of his righteousness, we get his mind on righteousness, and we get his measure for righteousness. Let me try and explain. I'm actually going to read from verse 5. Then the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart, everybody say heart, there's a reason for this. And his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created with them, animals, birds, creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. The reason I asked you to say heart is because two hearts are mentioned here. Firstly, the human heart was only evil all the time. And you see the beautiful poetry. The heart of humanity was evil, so the heart of God was grieved. This isn't simply God dispassionately looking at his Ikea plan and saying, well, that's not what I wanted. This is a God who is invested. This is a God who loves. This is a God who created out of love and created in the way he created that the people might be blessed. See, I give you every green tree. I'm not creating you because I need you. I'm creating you in this way because I love you. And so when you go astray from that love, my heart is grieved. When the human heart was wicked, God's heart was grieved. Do you see not just his mind, but see his heart for righteousness? It's not just about the rules. It's about goodness for the creation and the creatures that he loves. God's mind on righteousness is uh, also unshakable. He can't have it when things are not right. He can't look the other way. 
and he sees this, he takes a snapshot and he goes, this won't do. And he condescends in the most beautiful of ways. You know, um, when you talk to a little child, what do you do? Uh, if you're a soccer coach, I've seen Decky coach soccer and he's a good soccer coach. You get down on their level. You don't speak from on high. You get down on their level and you go eye to eye and you talk with them. Uh, when you're talking with a little one, you use different language. You babble with them. You do that sort of stuff. Uh, God does that with us. The God doesn't have a heart. Not until Jesus comes along. Uh, he's spirit. But he speaks about himself with, my heart is grieved as your heart is evil. And in the same way, the language of his regrets and things like that. God's mind is perfect, but he steps into relational space with us and says, let me explain my actions in your terms so you will know this isn't a standoffish thing. This is me involved with you and grieved and hurt and sad for how things have progressed because I love you. That's the kind of God we get. So that's his mind. What's his measure of righteousness? Well, his measure's quite, quite clear. His plan is the right plan, and it's the only plan. That which does not conform to his plan, we call wicked. We call evil. We say it's distorted. His plan is the only plan. Nicola, thank you for your prayers this morning, particularly coming out of Jeremiah. I thought they were quite prophetic particularly as we prayed about wickedness. No one likes to be called wicked, but the Bible says fair and square, hits you in the eye. Ah, I'm wicked, you're wicked, because we don't always live in perfect compliance with God's plan. That's his measure. So what can we learn about us? Well, I think what we can learn about us is, again, what, examining our sense of right or our sense of righteousness. Here's one that hit me square between the eyes. Who is renowned? For me, who is famous for me? Who are the heroes of the time for me? Who are the heroes of the time for you? Who are the influences? Who does your heart want to follow? Is it the great or is it the godly? Sometimes there are things about people that uh, are really attractive, but maybe they're not God's way. Who do you look to in the world as heroes and the people you want to influence you and influence your children and influence your group? Who are the heroes of renown? They say something about us, don't they? Who do we clap? Who do we applaud? Whose product do we buy? Maybe even in our church life together. What do you celebrate? Those with the greatest circle of influence amongst people and friends? Or those who walk closely with the Lord? who are prayerful, humble, scriptural, and true. So we ask ourselves, who are our heroes? We ask ourselves, what is our measure of righteousness? Is it what's faithful or what's familiar? I have said this, you might have said this, you have heard this. You share with someone about falling short of God's glory and things like that. And what do they say? Well, I'm not a murderer or anything. Because for most of us, murder is unfamiliar. We haven't made our peace with that kind of wickedness yet. Oh, I'm not perfect, not perfect. But the things I do, I've become comfortable enough with them that you wouldn't call them wicked, would you? I'm not a murderer or anything. And to illustrate this further, then you meet someone like the late Mark Chopper Reed, who is a murderer, but will say, yeah, but I never murdered any good people. <laughs> Only the baddies. 
And so our measure of what is right can sometimes be influenced more on what's familiar or who's familiar and what's pleasant rather than God's measure of righteousness. And if at this point you're starting to despair, thinking, man, I've been following the wrong people, I'm the wrong person, and all these sorts of things are terrible, let's talk about how do we get right. Well, you can learn a good lesson from Noah. How did Noah get right? See, from verse 8, you can read this. Amidst all this wickedness, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you're anything like me, you want to go, well, how, 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 how? Because if everyone's such a dirtbag, how did Noah shine? Well, good news, verse 9 says, this is the account of Noah. Here's his record. Here's his rap sheet. Here's what you can find out. This is the account of Noah and his family. This is a picture of multiplying and being fruitful. Now, Noah's not perfect, but here's what we do know. Noah was a righteous man. Ooh, first person in the whole Bible called righteous. First time the word comes up. So you go, ooh, how do you get there? Well, he's blameless among the people of his time. Well, that's nice. And he walked faithfully with God. There it is. The theme that will be in Scripture till the very end, he's justified by faith. He's made righteous by faith. He trusts God. Noah's biography will have some pretty ugly chapters in it too, as does everybody. But this man who's not perfect is found, finds favor with God because he's righteous, and he's righteous because he trusts God. That's what you need to know. What do we learn about us? You get right with God by trusting God. And as you trust God, it will shape how you walk with God. We are justified by faith and faith alone. The good, good old story. Right throughout the pages of Scripture. So that's the plan. The progress is not great. So now we've got to go, what's God going to do about it? What's God's response? This is why I can't be a knitter. I tried it once in my youth. And if I'm dropping a stitch or something like that, you're just going to have to live with it. Because I am not going back. I'm not going back. Ikea, I might go back and fix the mistake I made. But anything, I'm not going back. Just live with it, all right? Drop stitches, big hole in your jumper. Too bad. But that's not how God works. Here's his response. Firstly, he tells us, what does he see? Verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become. Now, there's a flow of evil here. It started back with Adam and Eve. Uh, a bad lunch decision led to murder amongst their children, led to terrible murder and boasting with a guy called Lamech, led to all kinds of things. And now you actually see that God saw how corrupt the earth had become, not just how the people, but it's like this disease. It's like an ancient evil COVID that has just kind of seeped into everything. There's big contamination. God sees how corrupt the earth had become. And it's all because of the people. So God says, this is how I'm going to respond. I'm going to put an end to all people because God doesn't, drop, God doesn't allow stitches dropped. They've got to be fixed. He's righteous. He's not dodgy. He can't be good and unrighteous. To be good, he's got to be righteous. So the righteous God says, I will respond. I'll put an end to all people. That's how I'm going to do it. And he gives his reason. And then he says, here's how I'm going to do it in verse 17. I'm going to bring floodwaters. Now, as you read this, I reckon there's two important questions that most of us would ask. Maybe there's more. I'm summarizing to two. And those two questions are, well, what kind of a flood is God bringing? And what kind of a God does that? 
Those are the two questions I regularly hear out of the story. What kind of a flood and what kind of a God? So let's see what we can do around what kind of a flood and more importantly, what kind of a God. When we talk about what kind of a flood, people sometimes think, is the flood a global flood? Like it says, like we're talking the whole world and how does that look? Like everywhere? Or are we talking about what others have said, a regional flood? Well, this is kind of like, you can say the whole world, like Noah's whole world and that culture's whole world. And so it's phenomenological where it's kind of like what he could experience, what he knew of the world. Because obviously they don't have Google Maps either. Um, So it could be a regional flood. And then I think the language others use, and there are a few views, but one of the other views is a universal flood where it might not have been physically the whole world, but the flood was sufficient to blot out all life, as God says. And I want to say to you this morning that of these views, there's a bad reason to believe all of them. There are bad reasons to believe all of them. And good biblical arguments can be made for all of them as well. It's true. I want to share with you now a little bit, not just about what kind of flood, but why some of us might go towards one way or another. And I promise, I don't promise, it's my desire next week to share a little bit more of you of why, how, when we read the Bible, why I come to the conclusions I do. Uh, I used to be a regional flood guy. In my preparation for this series, I changed. I'm a global flood guy now. That doesn't mean you have to be. That means you have to study the Bible hard because you can get good arguments for both. But I want to tell you why I think I was a regional flood guy and I want to tell you why I repent of it. Um, it's not because I was worried about the world, what the world might say. I got enough biblical views that'll get me heat from the world and I don't care. I, I only need Jesus, amen. Hopefully you're the same. But my own internal cynic was like, really? Whole world? All that? That's hard to believe. This is a passage of scripture I least wanted to preach. Because I didn't get it. Maybe I still don't get it. But I'm more empathetic to my backstory as to why I think I became a regional flood guy. I was raised in Roman Catholicism, as I think I've told you before, quite nominal Roman Catholicism. Here was my experience of that. There was a vague concept of God. There was a vague concept of me. There was a vague concept of sin. There was a vague concept of heaven and a vague concept of how I might got there and some things to taste, touch and smell along the way. And it left me very unsatisfied. I hated when I first heard a not vague but biblical concept of sin that told me that I was indeed wicked and deserved death. That was a bitter pill to swallow, but what helped me swallow it holus bolus and happily was when I heard that there's a biblical concept of how to fix that. That's the Lord Jesus. He died for my sin, and if I trust in him, just like Noah trusted in God, I'm certain for salvation. And so what happened for me in my testimony and my story was I love the clarity of Scripture. I love that the gospel makes sense. I love that now someone could say to me, hey, feel free to get hit by a bus tomorrow because if you're in Jesus, you're going to be in glory with him. And I'm like, thank you for being clear about the problem, clear about the solution and giving me certainty. Let's do all things clear. 
And then, not his fault, but interestingly enough, I was discipled by an engineer. Any engineers in the room? You guys know what you're like. And so we were very clear on the sin plus atonement equals righteous. Yeah, like all clear steps. And I'm loving the clarity of the thing. But you know what happened? I would say I became on the contained side of things. When I looked at the flood, I wanted a contained God where I loved that there was no mystery and no weird stuff. And even when I first started dating my wife, Rachel, and she said, do you believe in angels? Like, nah, I don't believe in all that weird stuff. I've repented. I believe in angels. Once upon a time, some fallen ones united with women, as in Genesis. But I wanted things so sanitized and clean and simple that I started to develop a contained God, and I think I took that lens to reading this scripture. I wanted my God to be simple enough. If I could just make his flood a bit smaller and a bit simpler and less out there, then I could be okay with that. That's not why everybody thinks of a regional flood, but it's one of the things I know and I confess influenced my thinking. I wanted a contained event because I was working with a contained God. If you are like me, don't be afraid for your God to get big. Don't be afraid for your God to get wild. Don't, for, don't be afraid for your God to be untamed. So I've, I fit on the contained side and thinking about a regional flood. I do. Not everyone does, but I did. There are some who will argue for a global flood, as I now do, but for different reasons. And those who argue for a global flood, some of them, some of them, did you all hear me say some of them? Yes, good. Some of them I would describe as constrained. What I mean by that is they'll love to tell you that, yep, it's exactly as written in the Bible, and you know, then they'll start to produce models of the boat. And this is how you actually, engineers have tested the boat and you can see how it floats just right and things work and there was nothing like it before and maybe that's true. I'm looking at the pages of Genesis and saying, gee, I really hope God had a separate document for Noah because he hasn't talked about, am I using stainless steel nails or dove joints? Or I'm not a carpenter, I don't know. There's a lot missing. Anyway, they will start to design the boat and tell you exactly how it works with great confidence and clarity. And when you raise questions about, gee, how does it work with feeding all those animals? And, you know, what goes in comes out. And, and I love the comedians like Ricky Gervais, who's an atheist who, like, you know, we, we lost the zebras. I've already got horses. You striped guys go, oh, a different animal. Um, all those sorts of problems. But they'll explain those away. And someone will want to send me an email about this take a joke, but I don't even know how three women and their mother-in-law live on a boat for that many weeks, and that's a method for salvation. Have a giggle. Don't email me. I don't agree with that view either. I love that there might be some ways to explain how things work, but if you want to have a constrained God where you think that he's tame enough that you can explain away all of this that Noah somehow followed perfectly a flat pack plan that came from heaven and because he designed it just right and did all the things just right, it worked out. I think your God has become very tame and very short of the supernatural, miraculous God that he is. 
you see, sometimes as we want to commend God, we can do a good thing. It's called a, a apologetics or a theological defense where we say, oh, well, it works like this. Here's why I believe this, 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 this. Sometimes we stray too far, I think, into what the, what the boffins call a theodicy, where we try to explain away everything God does as if God could be so contained and so constrained. But he's big and he's wild and he's beautiful. And, he, and sometimes the best apologetic is to tell the truth and say, until we humble ourselves and say, you are God and I am not, and you have done, do, do, and will do things that I could never do, things too wonderful for me to look into, we don't truly become believers in the biblical God. You see, God is not the God of the spiritual flat pack. That's religion where he sends you this plan and says, now go and do this. No, go and do these things and everything will work. Don't be confused. Just because there's excellent plans for a boat and all this sort of thing and there's a story there that somehow God said, here's the thing you do to save yourself. This is God at work in a miraculous boat. So what kind of a God do we meet here? Well, the kind of God we meet is not small and tame. He's big and he's wild. His ark is miraculous. It's not a feat of engineering. It's a feat of a redeeming God. The animals, did you, you read on later, the animals Noah had to collect, he never collected them. They came to him. Miraculous activity of God. This is the God who as pages of Scripture unfold will ask you and ask me to believe that when he sent his son, it was miraculous by virgin birth. When his son fed 5,000 people and their families with some kid's lunch, that wasn't because he had a good knife to, sh- to slice things up, but because of miraculous activity. The Bible says you're saved and you're justified when you believe the miraculous supernatural event of Jesus coming from the grave and being made alive again by the Holy Spirit sent by the Father. A big and a wild and a powerful God, not a God, not a God who sends you home with a spiritual flat pack, says, here's the steps, take this home, go and do these things and you should be right. He's not a God who sends you home with a spiritual flat pack. He's a God who says, no, I want to come home with you and live with you and where I am, you will be and we will relate together and things will be great. One is religion, one is relationship. He is the God who always saves supernaturally. Salvation is always a miracle. Whether that's a you were on your last dime taking drugs in a hotel room and as you wrote your last song, an angel appeared to you and you turned around and became an evangelist. Or your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather became a Christian and that good deposit was guarded in your family all the way down to you. And now you are, regardless of what your backstory is, you are a miracle created by God and redeemed by God who always saves supernaturally. It's God who does the work. What kind of a God do we meet in this flood? We meet a God of loving power and commitment to what is good. You see, every ancient world story knows of the flood. The oldest story we have, the Epic of Gilgamesh, talks about the flood. No one debates the flood. They might talk about what kind of a flood, but the Bible helps us understand the flood because every other flood was God's trying to destroy everyone and failing. But here we have a God who was redeeming and rescuing, and he's successful. He preserves his family whilst pulling back what is wicked. 
the God you meet in the flood is a God of love who wants to bring us back to what is good. What kind of a God? Well, the God whose measure of what is right is always perfect. The God who is committed to what is right such that he would send his son as the ultimate vessel of salvation. What kind of a God do we meet? The God who has an ability to save us by faith if we will trust in the supernatural event that he saved people on an ark and he saves people from an empty tomb when his son rose. What kind of a God do we meet in this story? We meet the God who knows, who knows, who knows, who knows, as do you and I. He knows that we deserve the flood, but he gives us the ark. We meet the God of grace. Amen. Let's pray to him. Our gracious heavenly Father, what a story you've put before us. It's I confess with my brothers and sisters, maybe they're more faithful than me, Lord, but I've always found it hard to get my head around. But you are big and not contained and not constrained and it's hard to get our heads around you. We thank you, Father, that you give us our Lord Jesus, that in him we can meet you, in him we can perfectly understand your character that will not tolerate wickedness, will work to bring judgment on wickedness just as we read in Second Peter. But amidst that works for salvation. You are a God who loves us enough to create us and when we strayed, you're a God who loved us even more to redeem us, to bring us back to the plan that we might have an eternity of joy with you. Father God, broaden our minds and where our minds aren't even broad enough, grow our faith that we may take you at your word, trust in your kindness, and like Noah, walk with you all the days of our life and be found righteous. In Jesus' name we pray. 